Hello and welcome to Rules-Based Audio, a Lowy Institute podcast. In this series, we explore the rules-based order, a concept that is ever more prominent in debates about how the world works and how it should work. Coming to you from Gadigal land, my name is Ben Scott, and I direct the Institute's Rules-Based Order project. Today, we're going to talk about Australia's plan to acquire nuclear-powered submarines and what that means for nuclear non-proliferation. I'm delighted to be joined by two highly credentialed experts. Maria Rost Rubli is an Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations at Monash University and President of the Australian Chapter of Women in International Security. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Alan Cooperman is an Associate Professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs, University of Texas at Austin, and is Founding Coordinator of the Nuclear Proliferation Prevention Project. Welcome, Alan. Nice to be here. First, to recap. In September last year, Australia, the United States, and the United Kingdom announced a trilateral security partnership called AUKUS. Its first first initiative is a shared ambition to support Australia in acquiring nuclear-powered submarines. The three countries announced a trilateral effort of 18 months to seek an optimal pathway to deliver this capability. This has raised a host of questions, including some very technical and legal ones. Importantly, the Australian submarines would be powered by weapons-grade or highly enriched uranium, HEU, as are US and UK boats. China and France, on the other hand, use low-enriched uranium, or LEU, in their submarines. The AUKUS countries are all parties to the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, often just referred to as the NPT. They've all emphasised Australia does not seek nuclear weapons. But AUKUS would make Australia the first non-nuclear weapons state to own nuclear-powered submarines. So it's not surprising that AUKUS has been a focus of discussion at the five-yearly NPT review conference, which is currently underway in New York. Indonesia has, for example, said in New York that any cooperation involving transfer of nuclear materials and technology for military purposes from nuclear weapons states to any non-nuclear weapons state increases the risks of proliferation. So let's get into it. Alan, to you first, are there any legal obstacles to Australia's plan to acquire nuclear-powered submarines? No, there, there are not, um, because the uh, IAEA's safeguards agreements um, have a thing called paragraph 14, which uh, says that a country can use nuclear material for a military non-explosive purpose. Uh, And and that paragraph is in there specifically for things like naval propulsion. So it is not illegal for Australia to do that. The the problem, however, is that it undermines the whole point of having safeguards, which is to have inspections that ensure that material is not diverted to make nuclear weapons. It's not illegal, there's no legal obstacle, um, but it does undermine the whole point of the Non-Proliferation Treaty and IAEA safeguards. And then the question is, to what extent would there be any inspections while this material were in a submarine program? Um, By the reading of the paragraph, you could avoid inspections for decades. Australia has been giving hints that it is going to allow some inspections Uh, of its naval program. And the question is, is that adequate to achieve the IAEA goal? And and maybe we'll get into that later. 
Um, yeah, Alan, I, I heard you earlier make a distinction between the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and the nuclear non-proliferation regime. Uh, could, could you elaborate a little bit on that just to explain this distinction you're talking about? Sure. Um, so the NPT is very old. It was written, um, authored mainly by uh, the namesake of my school, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, the president of the United States in 1968. Um, it was very basic and very rudimentary. And since then, lots and lots of international norms and rules have been built up to try to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. And one of those is this thing called HEU minimization. HEU is highly enriched uranium. It's the stuff that was inside the Hiroshima bomb. And it is very easy to make a nuclear weapon with HEU. And so since the 1970s, for decades, the, the world has had a norm of minimizing and then eliminating commerce and use of HEU. And great progress has been made. 71 reactors have converted from bomb grade fuel to low enriched uranium fuel. All of the medical isotope producers, the main ones in the world, have all converted from HEU to low enriched uranium. And that has reduced the risk of both proliferation uh, by states and nuclear terrorism. What this AUKUS thing would do if it uses HEU fuel in subs in a country like Australia that is supposed to not have nuclear weapons is that it will reverse decades of progress um, on minimizing HEU and open potentially the floodgates for other countries to do the same thing. And in that way, while it would be legal under the NPT and IAEA, it would undermine the nuclear non-proliferation regime. Maria, do you agree with all of that? And in particular, how concerned are you about the opening of the floodgates? Yes, I'm quite concerned about the opening of the floodgates, and I do agree with Alan's analysis. I do want to just quickly mention that um, Alan mentioned internationally the legality of Australia pursuing these nuclear submarines. Um, domestically as well, they're, they're, it's not illegal for Australia to move ahead with this. I do want to note, though, that Australia does have um, domestic laws against the pursuit of nuclear power, and South Australia and Victoria also have legal options to that. And it's just interesting because um, within the Navy, for example, and sort of wider defense discussions of this, we talk about a need to have a nuclear mindset in Australia, you know, workforce, industrial base, um, and, and so we'll be making this enormous investment in this nuclear mindset that will be used only for um, nuclear submarines. And at, at the cost that is coming to the Australian people, I think there should be some questions about that. But in terms of the floodgates, we've already seen it. For example, I'd like to talk about South Korea for just a moment. Um, if you look at South Korea, they have their own indigenous shipbuilding program. They have their own indigenous submarine program. And they also have their own indigenous uh, nuclear power program. In, all of which are so good that they export to other countries. Australia has none of those, really. I mean, we have some shipbuilding, but, but not very much. Um, and so the South Koreans are saying, understandably, understandably, why can't we be included in this type of arrangement? They're very, very angry within South Korea, domestically, um, the public. It actually comes up publicly. It's sometimes in public debates. And certainly politicians are very angry about this. But the U.S. Um, has no intention of including South Korea in this type of you know, technology, in part because within South Korea, there's also great interest in the nuclear weapons program. 
And in fact, South Korea had its own indigenous nuclear weapons program that they closed down basically because the U.S. had to make threats saying, if you don't, there's going to be issues with our alliance with you. And so, you know, South Korea is a country that absolutely could develop its own nuclear submarines if they wanted to. And, you know, they're asking why they can't. Uh, that we're just one of the countries that we're concerned about in terms of, you know, opening this loophole wider. If South Korea was to go down this route, presumably they would use their own enriched uranium rather than seek to import it on the on the Australian AUKUS model. Is that right? Well, I mean, my guess is they would go an LEU model, um, but at, at least to start. However, um, you know, the in terms of um, reprocessing, that could potentially lead to a plutonium route or a bomb. That is. Alan, are there particular countries that you're concerned about in terms of the negative precedent that AUKUS might set? Um, I think there are going to be lots of countries that are going to respond um, if this AUKUS submarine deal proceeds with uh, bomb-grade uranium fuel. They're going to go to the U.S. and say, we want the same deal. And as Maria rightly says, the U.S. will respond, no, this is special. This is only for Australia. And what these countries are going to say is, well, then we're going to go ahead and build our own submarines and enrich our own uranium. And if HEU is good enough for Australia, then it's good enough for us too. And what you'll have then is the growth of uh, uranium enrichment programs, which is very, very dangerous because any enrichment program can produce highly enriched uranium. I mentioned, you mentioned uh, before the non-proliferation regime. Another key aspect of the non-proliferation regime has been to limit, minimize the number of countries that have enrichment technology. Um, and we've been very successful at that. Very, very few countries are, have the ability to enrich uranium and thereby produce HEU. Um, but under this AUKUS precedent, these countries will now have this great excuse to say, we need our own enrichment program, not to get something different than Australia, but just to get the exact same thing as Australia, but the U.S. won't sell it, so we'll produce it ourselves. And we'll start by producing the HEU, and then we'll work on the submarines. And so they'll be able to get HEU for bombs even before they have submarines. It's really the worst uh, of all worlds. I could reel off countries that I think might do this. One can think of maybe Saudi Arabia, Turkey, potentially uh, Japan, South Korea, possibly some of the ASEAN countries. Uh, It could even be countries that you wouldn't think of in in South America and Africa. And um, as you know, what would we say? How How could we rally international opposition to it? when the U.S. had just given this material, tons of this material, enough for hundreds of nuclear weapons to Australia. And Malaysia said this recently. They said, they said if the U.S. provides HEU to Australia, how could we oppose anybody else getting it? We would be hypocrites if we did it. So I think that's, that's really the danger of the floodgates. Okay, so just, just theoretically then, if it was possible to dramatically strengthen the norm against enrichment um, and to limit arrangements like AUKUS to those where HEU is provided by a nuclear weapon state to a non-nuclear weapon state and, and and that to be the only precedent, then that would seem to limit its impact greatly. Is that, is that at all feasible? 
I, I, no, I don't think so. It's basically saying that the U.S. would get to dictate who in the world can have HE submarines and who can't. And maybe that would have flown in the 20th century, but that's not going to fly in the multipolar world of the, of the 21st century. Um, you're all about a rules-based order, and that's not a rules-based order. That's, that's the antithesis of it. It's, it's a, just a, an elite club. So, um, yeah, and I, I really think that um, these countries will go through the process of saying, asking the U.S. to provide HEU subs. The U.S. will say no, and then they'll say, oh, well, now you've justified us having our own enrichment programs, which is really even worse. And let me add some context here, because within the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty itself and the larger regime, it is facing tremendous, uh, it's, it's, some experts say it's at a crisis point because of this issue of the NPT already is an unequal treaty. You have the haves, the countries that are allowed to have nuclear weapons and the have not, those who are not allowed to have nuclear weapons. And this disparity has been at the heart of a lot of the problems uh, and concerns around the NPT for a long time. If we now introduce this new layer where you have some um, partially haves, such as Australia, then this is going to sort of, uh, you know, wedge and deepen this crisis. And, you know, I know people have been talking about the collapse of the NPT for a long time, but now that we have, for example, the treaty on, on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, um, you know, Russia's threats to use nuclear weapons, we have lots of ways in which the NPT is under incredibly severe stress. This could be, in fact, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Although I wouldn't call it a straw, I would call it like a very heavy concrete bar. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important point. I suspect the answer from some Australian policymakers might be, uh, yes, the NPT is under so much pressure from so many different directions at the moment. Why are we worried so much about something as obviously benign and harmless as AUKUS? But uh, I'd like to come back to that at the end if we can and, and, and just stay focused more particularly on, on this particular agreement and the proliferation consequences. So in New York, the AUKUS powers say that they're committed to working with the IAA to ensure that the precedent set closes the door to any potential misuse of these elements for the purposes of developing a clandestine nuclear weapons program. And they provide a little bit of detail. Uh, the AUKUS countries say Australia will be provided with a complete welded power units so that Australia need not conduct uranium enrichment or fuel fabrication. Uh, they're engaging with the IAA to find a suitable verification approach. Um, and also that the uranium will not be in a form that can be directly used in nuclear weapons without further chemical processing. Uh, Alan, what's your response to all those reassurances? Well, um, they're, they're hollow and they're hypocritical because they're the opposite of what all three of these countries have said historically about this risk. Um, first of all, can there be uh, an inspection system that achieves the IAEA detection goal? The answer is simply no, and it's, it's a matter of, of math. Um, according to the IAEA, a country can divert um, this sort of HEU material to make bombs in anywhere from one week to three months. But an inspection regime, regime for uh, attack submarines that are at sea for half, half a year under the water is not going to have inspections every three months. They'll be maybe every year, every two years. And what that means is that a country could divert the material, make a bomb, explode the bomb before there was another inspection. Um, so 
there is no inspections regime that's feasible that could achieve the IAEA detection goal. That's first of all. Second of all, this argument by the three AUKUS countries that, well, don't worry because this HU will be in the form of fuel inside a reactor and that's somehow a barrier to proliferation. That is the opposite of what they've been saying for 45 years. HEU used to be exported as fuel for research reactors and targets for production of medical isotopes. And these three countries and the rest of the world said, it is so easy to chemically process the HEU in the fuel to remove the HEU, turn it into metal and make it into a bomb. It is so easy that even terrorists could do it. And that's why we're going to reduce and eliminate commerce and use of HEU in fuel. So for them to turn around now and say, oh, don't worry, the HEU is in fuel, so therefore it's not a risk, uh, they know that's false and it's hypocritical. I'd like to jump in to talk about, you know, is it possible to, you know, actually get the HEU from, you know, these sealed cores? And it, I know that um, the AUKUS countries have been saying that's not possible. That is just completely not true. It is possible. Um, you know, they said, well, you'd have to cut into the hull and we would see the gash and that would be observable. You wouldn't have to cut into the hull. Um, you could just uh, remove the HEU fuel from the pressure vehicle and then remove it from the submarine by one of the cargo hatches. And for example, modern US subs reportedly have three logistic escape trunks, LETs, which have a diameter of around eight feet which is wider than the entire ATU core. So this is possible. That's fascinating. I hadn't heard that before. Maria, I understand, I guess from that, that you also don't take much comfort from, or from the obvious efforts of the AUKUS countries and the IAEA to cooperate as closely as possible to find some kind of new verification regime or safeguards, no? No, I mean, how, how could we? You know, these are ships that are expected to be at sea for, you know, many months. And this type of diversion can happen within a week. And then chemical processing and the use for a bomb. And we have to remember, this isn't just theoretical. Um, you know, we understand that Saddam Hussein, prior to the Gulf War, ordered that HEU be removed from their research reactor fuel through a crash bomb program. So countries do this type of thing. And, you know, then even, even if, even if, and I say it's physically and mathematically impossible, but even if you could imagine that the IAEA could come up with an inspection regime for the AUKUS subs. As you mentioned before, there's the floodgates problem, which is that the next country is gonna ask for such subs, they'll be told no, and they'll say, well, we'll just produce our own HEU. And under IAEA safeguards paragraph 14, they can say, this is for our Navy, IAEA, you may not inspect it at all, right? And, and, and then it's game over. Just to summarize that part of the discussion and put it as bluntly as possible, what you're both saying is that in terms of uh, legal precedent, there's really no difference whatsoever between the acquisition of nuclear subs by Australia with its impeccable non-proliferation record in full cooperation with the IAEA and not having a domestic nuclear enrichment program and any other state uh, acquiring nuclear submarines regardless of cooperation with the IAEA, regardless of uh, uh, their proliferation record and um, whether or not they're going to import the, the uranium or, or, or enrich it domestically. 
Is that is that right? So I, 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 I wouldn't say no difference. I would, you know, so for example, Iran has said it, it's producing HEU um, for a future naval uh, propulsion program. And I think the whole world so distrusts Iran because it has violated its safeguards agreements repeatedly uh, in the past. And Israel exposed the fact that Iran had this uh, clandestine nuclear weapons program. So in the case of Iran, you might be able to still build international will to try and block the program. But what about all the other countries that I mentioned? They're members in good standing of the NPT. They don't have IAEA safeguards violations. So there could be a half dozen, a dozen or more countries that could say, we want HU submarines. If you don't sell them to us, we're going to produce the HU. And I don't think you'll get international consensus against those countries. I think, in fact, you'll get international consensus in favor of those countries saying, if the English speaking white people in Australia can get it, we deserve it too. I see you're nodding, Maria. You agree. Okay. Um, let's, let's, let's turn to the LEU option. Um, and I'll stay with you, Alan, because you've spoken on this quite a bit. How, how realistic would it be at this stage for Australia to seek a submarine powered by LEU? provided by perhaps the United States or even France, which would be quite a turnaround. Um, it's, it's, it's quite realistic. Um, you mentioned France. France would be the easiest and the quickest because France already produces nuclear submarines, operates them. Their enrichment of their fuel is the same as in their commercial nuclear power plants. It's LEU. Um, and when I visited uh, the French government a couple months ago, they said, they could start providing such LEU nuclear submarines to Australia around 2035, which is earlier even than the AUKUS submarines with HEU are expected to start being delivered. So that's option one. Option two is going to the U.S. and saying, uh, we want to continue with AUKUS, but we prefer LEU subs instead of HEU subs. And, and the U.S. has been researching and developing uh, the LEU subs um, for its own Navy since 2016. And uh, it's been funded every year by Congress. So there's a, a base uh, of work that's already been accomplished. And um, the expectation is that that could probably yield an LEU submarine somewhere in the early 2040s, um, which again is about when the AUKUS subs are supposed to start coming even with HEU fuel. So uh, there are two options. And I didn't mention the UK, but the reason is that the US provides the fuel and the technology for the UK subs. So if, if Australia wanted to go with a UK sub with LEU, then the US would be providing the technology behind that as well. Um, that option might be a little slower just because the UK is slower in developing its next generation uh, attack submarine, nuclear attack submarine. But to answer your question, very realistic. There is no problem. There is no uh, technical shortcoming when you go from an HEU sub to an LEU sub. France used to operate HEU subs, and they converted to LEU subs, and they did some upgrades, and the LEU submarine actually had higher power than its preceding HEU submarine. Maria, I'm interested in your thoughts on the, the, the French option. 2035 sounds incredibly optimistic to me, and I wonder if there's not a bit of marketing rolled in there, but... Uh... I'm not the expert, but 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 more particularly, uh, I've I read press reports that when the French option was considered, it was ruled out by Australia 
because of the need for 10 yearly refueling, which, which, which Canberra thought would make us just too dependent on France. Um, your thoughts on that? Well, I would say that the only, uh, there are not technical problems with switching to an LEU sub. So I want to jump back quickly to what uh, Alan was talking about. The real problem here are the strategic problems, the diplomatic problems. The fact is that Australia wants to be tied up with the US and the UK. And that is what is guiding their decisions about their nuclear submarines rather than um, concerns about the non-proliferation agreement, rather than concerns about what actually Australia needs, what's in Australia's strategic interest. So I'd like to be very clear that the decisions being made about Australia's nuclear submarine program are tied up in its desire for tightening this alliance with the U.S. And that is a very serious problem, in my opinion. Why is that a very serious problem? That's a very serious problem because, for example, we don't want to be too dependent on France, and yet we are going to tie ourselves even closer to the U.S. Um, when, you know, the questions about whether or not Australia should have its strategic defense needs um, so dependent on one alliance partner, um, especially an alliance partner that refuses to make any public commitments about whether Australia is under its nuclear umbrella, um, whether, uh, you know, we see, for example, uh, in the Trump era, a desire to sort of um, reduce alliances, reduce commitment to alliances. I just want to say that same type of uh, concern about alliances and, and unwillingness to commit to alliances could also come from the left. And so in the U.S., you know, whether or not Australia wants to continue to say, um, you know, we're going to put all of our eggs in this one basket that, frankly, has been swinging wildly. And, you know, as you know, people are talking about whether or not there may be a civil war in the U.S. Now, I think that, you know, is, is a small probability. But the fact is the U.S. is not that politically stable, um, you know, if, if you're tracking what might be happening in the in the upcoming elections, um, you know, the next presidential election. And so, look, I think that, yes, Australia should be in alliance with the U.S., and I think the U.S. is a strong partner, but should it be making all of its decisions about its primary um, sort of, you know, uh, detection vehicle? You know, we're putting in $200 billion, some people are saying now $300 billion into this program, um, making all of the requirements so that we're, tightly aligned with the U.S. just doesn't seem to make much sense. And people aren't talking about it. That's the other thing. We need to really, uh, you know, rather than just sort of wave our hands and say, oh, this is all good, actually let's examine these assumptions and question them. All excellent points and lots of material there for probably a whole separate podcast. Um, but Maria, while, while, while you're talking, I'd like to give you a chance to respond to the point I made earlier, which is, when we zoom back and look at the NPT big picture, it's under so much pressure from so many fronts. You know, the the, the nuclear weapon states have really done nothing to disarm. Uh, the treaty hasn't stopped other states acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, a whole lot of other pressures. Why? Why in that context should we worry so much about AUKUS? Why is AUKUS the the rod that'll break the camel's back, and why is it not just a trivial footnote? And you know, if if, if the regime is under such pressure anyway, then Australia should be acquiring whatever capability it can within the letter of the law. I believe that um, the, the countries that have expressed concern about the NPT would say, even by asking that question, you don't understand our concerns at all. Because the concerns are that this is an unequal treaty 
in which you have basically, you know, sort of the U.S.-led alliance um, and other countries, but, you know, keeping this unequal treaty going um, and, and now bringing in a partner um, to, you know, give them some of the benefits. The NPT is supposed to be equal. You're supposed to be equal before the law. And here is an example of the U.S. and the U.K. basically saying we're going to make someone a little bit more equal under the law. Final question for both of you. While in opposition, the Australian Labor Party committed to joining the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. What would be the effect of doing so on Australia's alliance with the United States as well as on AUKUS? Alan, I'll go to you first for an answer to that and, and to the earlier issue. So I think I'll, I'll leave the, the Treaty uh, on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons to Maria. Um, but I do want to speak about the pressures on the NPT. Uh, the NPT, for all the criticism of it, has been part of what I would call a very successful non-proliferation regime. If you think about it, in 1968, there were five nuclear weapon states. There, there are now nine. And so we're talking about, over the course of more than five decades, only four countries have acquired nuclear weapons and net. I would prefer it to be zero, but, but four is, is a fairly small number. And the reason for that success is that the non-proliferation regime reduces both the motivation to acquire nuclear weapons and the means to acquire nuclear weapons. And what you're seeing in terms of pressure until now is more pressure on the motivation part. So when Iran seems to be pursuing nuclear weapons, then Saudi Arabia says, well, we want them. It's motivation. When North Korea gets nuclear weapons, then South Korea says, we want nuclear weapons. That's motivation. When Ukraine gets invaded because Russia has nukes and Ukraine doesn't, the neighboring countries say, hmm, maybe we want nuclear weapons to deter uh, Russia. That's all about motivation. But still, they don't have the means to get the nuclear weapons. To get the means, they'd have to say, we want an enrichment program to produce HEU, or we want a reprocessing program to produce plutonium for bombs. And if, if they were to say that today, people would say, excuse me, what? That's a red flag. You must be pursuing bombs. And that's why AUKUS is so dangerous, because it provides this excuse for them to acquire the means, the HEU, um, that will match up with their motivation to uh, acquire nuclear weapons. And so I, I agree with Maria that um, this AUKUS precedent and opening the floodgates could, could, could ultimately undermine the whole non-proliferation regime. And it's not because it creates new motivation for nuclear weapons. Countries already have that. But what it does, it provides them this kind of carte blanche excuse to produce the means uh, of nuclear weapons. And so they have the material, they have the motivation, and very likely they'll get nuclear weapons. Maria. Yes, I think the question of the TPNW is a good one and actually probably the subject for, you know, at least one uh, podcast. All I can say is I know that there are lawyers, lawyers have been looking at this question about um, if Australia uh, joined the TPNW, what impact would that have on its alliance with the U.S.? And um, I know that some lawyers have expressed concern, for example, because of you know, um, you know, U.S. monitoring stations that contribute to the U.S. nuclear weapons um, program. 
But other people, other lawyers have said, no, that's not the case. And so I'm not sure. I know that labor, that the current government is looking at this very closely. And I think labor does have a commitment to PPNW. Um, and my guess is that they will probably find a way to join. Um, but to the extent to which AUKUS and concerned about nuclear submarines might, you know, throw, it may, might make it a bit more difficult, then that reduces the likelihood that that our current government would join, which would be, again, um, you know, a, a significant blow given also their previous promises. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Many, many thanks, uh, Maria and Alan, for that uh, really deeply informed and rich discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Ben Scott, and you've been listening to Rules-Based Audio, which is part of the Lowy Institute's project on Australia's security and the rules-based order, supported by the Department of Defence. Thanks for listening. Thank you.